This season of What's Your Story is brought to you by Paystack. If you run a business or you're thinking of launching one, Paystack helps you to accept payments online from anyone, anywhere in the world. Don't have a website? Doesn't matter. With Paystack, you can create a simple and attractive online store for free and all by yourself. You can also create simple payment links and invoices and send them to your customers wherever you chat with them. And they can pay you via card, mobile money, Apple Pay, and more. Paystack also integrates seamlessly with popular e-commerce platforms like Shopify, WordPress, and WooCommerce. And if you're a tech-savvy business owner, you can rely on the Paystack API to create custom and delightful payment experiences for your customers. Create your free Paystack account and join over 200,000 businesses across Africa that rely on Paystack to get paid and grow their businesses. Visit paystack.com technova to create your free Paystack account and start accepting payments online. That's paystack.com slash technova. So we as construction engineering management students got the opportunity to work with like some companies in the Bay Area around their construction things. And my project was around Google. Hmm. So myself and another classmate, we were working with department at Google around renovating a couple of their buildings. Mm -hmm. So just being there and seeing like how great the company was, you know, all the free food, like how great it is to work for. Yeah, the free And then we're also hearing that Google is the best company to work for, etc. I was just becoming very enamored with Google. Mm. So the first thing I thought of was, I think I could work for Google and work with their construction or real estate team. Because we've seen this opportunity. Yeah, it's right there. In today's episode, we talk to Ato Ozanopia, the co-founder of Parkham Ghana and Junior Camp Ghana, two organizations that champion youth volunteers in Ghana. Before starting his Parkham project, Ato Ozan was in the U.S. Specifically, he went to MIT. Yep, that MIT. From there, he transitioned to be a progress manager at Google in Ghana before finally stepping out on his own. But let's hear the story of how Atu went from Ghana all the way to MIT, came back to Ghana to specifically work at Google, and then started his bar camp project. I grew up on the KNUSD campus because okay. my parents were lecturers, senior lecturers. So I went to KNUSD Nesri Primary GSS. And then from there, I remember when I was making a decision around BEC and the schools to choose. Well, first, I was I grew up Catholic. Okay. So I was thinking about Catholic schools like Opokuware, St. Augustine's. But I felt I wanted to leave Kumasi. You know, I was a bit of a sheltered child growing up. So I wanted to kind of like break out of, you know, see see what else. (laughs) Break out of, you know, being too close to my parents. And uh, I actually. chose Accra schools because I could have gone to Cape Coast because, mm. you know, there were lots of great schools in Cape Coast. Yeah. In Fancy Pims, in the Gessens, yeah. But I was feeling that if I went to a school in Cape Coast, I wouldn't have my aunts come and visit me and bring me food. Mm. So let me go to Accra where my aunts are close that makes sense. and I'll get a lot of food. That, that, <laughs> so, that makes sense. So I ended up choosing Presec and also at the time, I think lots of people were saying that Presec was like, you know, one of the top schools, especially for science. Yeah. Some of my students, some of my mates wanted to go there. And uh, I also succumbed to a bit of peer pressure because mm. whilst I was in JSS, I liked a lot of general knowledge and trivia. 
So I like history. I like geography. Like I like knowing where things were and what things had happened. Okay. But most people said, you know, you're, you're so smart. Like you can't go and do general arts. You should go and do science. science. So I felt I succumbed to peer pressure. I was also good at math, and okay. I decided to do science at Presec. Okay. So that's how I ended up there. So did you know what you wanted to do? Like you didn't think you were going to do science, right? You just wanted to just do because everybody else was doing it. Yeah. Well, I. I mean, I, I had no problems doing science. I just know that I really gave general arts a thought. Mm. And I eventually chose science because of peer pressure. But I don't regret choosing science. I think, okay. I think it was good I did choose science. And um, it's just that whilst I was in JSS, I was very enamored with information. Mm. I wanted to know all the facts, all the knowledge, all the information, all the presidents in the country, in, all around the world, all the capitals, who had won the FIFA World mm-hmm. Best Player since it started, right. who had won the Olympic gold in 100 meters since it started. Those were the things that really I was passionate about. So it lent a bit to history and geography. Okay. That's why I had that interest. But I think science ended up, you know, science science was good. Okay. Did you know what you wanted to do when you were done with school as far as uh, Presec? Yeah, so I knew when I was in Presec, I realized that I was, you know, very, very good at math. And the interesting thing about a school like Presec is coming into the school, you know, you know, you have lots of brilliant boys coming from all around the country. Mm. So, you know, you want to be the top student. Mm. And then there's also like the national science and math quiz. Like yeah. I remember what my goal when I was entering the school was I want to be part of the national science and math oh, quiz wow. team. So I remember I was very, I was one of the top students in chemistry, one of the top students in elective maths. And uh, so it made me think about engineering. Oh, okay. And um, I also realized that I didn't want to be a doctor. <laughs> I didn't want to do medicine. What, did your parents um, want you to go in that direction? No, it's just that, you know, growing up, lots of people talk about yeah. the smartest kids go and do yeah. medicine. You know, it's the hardest program to get into, yeah. uh, especially like Key University for me growing up there. Yeah. But I knew I didn't want to do medicine because I felt biology was too hard. Mm. And I think I was a bit afraid of blood. Mm-hmm. I'm not That's afraid of blood now because I go into blood all the time. Right. But at the time, <laughs> it was know, a very daunting thing. So, yeah. so I knew I wanted to do engineering. And I think I eventually chose civil engineering because, you know, I felt civil engineering was more around development. Mm. And I also knew some people who had done civil engineering. And even though we were talking a lot about tech and computer science, I also felt that I could learn computer science without studying it. Okay. So I I ended up choosing to do civil engineering at MIT for my undergrad. So how did you get into or hear about even that undergrad? Yes. So I think one of the great things about Presec is lots of students look up to alumni and students who've just left. Right. So not so much looking up to like a 50-year-old alumni. But those who just left the school before we came, mm. how well are they doing? Where have they gone? I remember when I uh, entered Presec, the, I entered in 1999. Mm. And in 98, the WASI results had come out. And the top three students, the second top student was from Presec, Takosi okay. Mbia. The third top student was also from Presec, Atemusa. Right. 
Arthur Musa is someone I picked as my role model after hearing that kind of news because oh, wow. he had been part of the drama club. He wasn't just smart; he was doing other things in the school. Mm-hmm. And interestingly enough, Parkwesi Imbia is my immediate mentor now. Okay. And the guy who was number one is also a friend of mine. Okay. So. <laughs> he went to another school. Okay. But um, so in form two. We had heard that Arthur Musa had gotten into MIT. It's a big deal. That's yeah. the first time I heard about it. And people were like, oh, MIT is a top engineering university in the whole world. Mm-hmm. It's a big deal. Arthur Musa has done so well. So I was like, ah, okay. I, I think I want to go to MIT just yeah. like Arthur Musa. So, okay. so before then, my whole life was I'm going to go to tech. Mm, yeah. You know, and the funny thing is, MIT is also called tech <laughs> in the yes, US. That's true. That's true. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, at that point, I just. You know, I was like, I told my parents I want to go to MIT. So okay. I started, you know, looking at how I could do that. I had to write SAT, etc., etc. And um, after I was done with Presec, my father organized for me to come to the US. Okay. To join him, he was there at the time. So whilst I was there, I did all my applications. In fact, in my mind, I thought I was going to America because of MIT. Hmm. I wasn't going to like the US like people think of greener pastures I want yeah. to go to another country just for me my mind was MIT school. Just for school and my father was pretty much the only person who really helped me do my applications hmm. and I think he did a phenomenal job with that and the other thing I realized quickly was like I can't apply just to MIT oh, like okay. I have to apply to some other schools in just case for, I don't get yeah, just, <laughs> in for case a I don't get yeah. in just for a backup yeah. so yeah so I applied to I applied to seven universities. Okay, that's a lot. Including Syracuse University because mm. I was living in Syracuse. Okay, and my father's college was connected to that. I applied to Cornell because it was close to Syracuse University, and then I applied to MIT and four State University of New York oh, wow. campuses. So I think the first the first decision that came was from one of the SUNY schools. Mm. You know, it wasn't the school I wanted to go to. I just applied <laughs> and I was excited. And then the next decision that came was from MIT. Okay. So. And I remember when they called me, I was in the apartment with my dad and one of his best friends. And when they told me the news, I just left the phone and started jumping around. <laughs> <laughs> My father tells me this story all the time. But pretty much after MIT said yes, I was like, I don't care what they had to say. Yeah, so, it's, it's a lot deal. You're going to MIT. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's how I ended up there. What was yeah. the first experience like when you went on campus to MIT? <sighs> so before we actually went on campus, we went to campus preview weekend. Okay. I drove there with my dad. And I think the thing that struck me was I guess, first, how friendly people were. Because I, I talked about this recently on Facebook and some people were like saying different things. But, you know, in the U.S., as a black person, you will face some kind of racial profiling at some point. Maybe yeah. not racism. Yeah. And I always felt that I felt some racial profiling whilst I was in Syracuse. Mm. And so going to MIT for the first time for the campus preview weekend and seeing how people kind of like really embraced me and were friendly was was interesting because I, I roomed with a white guy called David in one of the dorms called East Campus and we, we really knocked it off. Mm. So I think that really struck me. Right. Apart from, you know, 
confirming that like most of the people around me were really smart. Yeah. I think that's what kind of struck me. It's it was more like lots of the people in that environment were exposed. Oh, okay. And funny enough, I was even telling someone today that in America, there's a lot of, we talk a lot about ignorance. Yeah. You know, um, but it felt like in this MIT community, like most of the people there were not, like they knew lots of things about Ghana oh, okay. or about different places as opposed to a lot of Americans that I would meet like you know, in Syracuse right. and in other places. So I think that's something that struck me. Oh, that's pretty good. So, how was the entire education period for doing MIT? Was it? Did you catch on really quick? Did you learn? Because the system is a bit different, like yeah. you know, in tech in yeah. Ghana and tech in the US. Yeah. No, I, I caught on quite quickly. I think the good thing is that when we were in Presec, we used to learn a lot of things that were not in the syllabus. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I remember we had there's one book called something Parker. I've forgotten the name. But we used to, apart from the ghasts, which we would learn, <laughs> we would learn all the these different books. So yeah. I felt that, you know, in my first semester in MIT, like some of the things we even learned in calculus, I knew already. Oh, okay. So you had so, advanced learning in a way. Yeah, yeah. So the first year was, you know, easier, hmm. you know. And then after that, I had to learn other new things and then it was tougher. I think it also just showed that, you know, we were as good as, anybody from anywhere else in the world yeah you know so i think that was that was good and i think within that period especially within the first year i was becoming more pan-african mm. more pan-african in the sense of like oh you know africa we can do it yeah you know that kind of you know stuff and uh i mean that's that's something that kind of continued during that period and I think the other thing that struck me that first year was also how we learned, you know, okay. just the education systems. Like, so, like how was, what was the differences between there and here? Yeah. So one thing that really struck me that I always say is I remember some of the first tests and exams that I would take, let's say it's some kind of a math exam. And there are 10 steps to get to the, the answer for, you know, like question one. Right. If I made a mistake at step three, the lecturer would normally, or the professor would just give me like a minus two. Mm. And then imagine that if I didn't make this mistake, am I continuing to do the right thing? Right. And then at the end of the question, I'll have eight out of 10. Mm. But if this was marked in Ghana, I'd have zero out of 10. Yeah, because they mark you all the wrong. <laughs> they mark this the answer. So that's something that really struck me earlier on, that, you know, we are trying to... MIT as an institution is trying to educate people around processes, like mm. how to solve problems, right. how to go about getting things done. And it's not just, did you have the correct answer or not? So that's something that kind of, it was a stark difference for mm. me. So that's something that I had to like really learn. Okay. And then I think the second thing was being able and going for help. Okay. You know, so especially when I was in Presec, I was one of the smartest students. So I normally didn't need someone to help me understand something. Right. But being in a space like MIT where lots of people are smart, you are also smart. You know, they really encourage people to go and talk to your TAs, go yeah. and talk to your professors, yeah. group work. So that's something that was also quite different that I had to take some time to get used to, mm. you know, at the beginning. Okay. Yeah. 
So during your MIT stint, were you already thinking about apply, applying for like a job in the U.S. or were you already thinking about coming back home and just kind of applying yourself? Right. So like I said before, first I thought I was going to the U.S. just for MIT. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I mean, I knew I wanted to come back. Mm -hmm. But like most people who even want to come back, they want to work and save some money before they, they return to their, their home countries. Right. So I studied civil engineering. Yeah. And but I think in my second semester or the first semester of my second year, I just realized that I liked lots of different things. Okay. Right? I was interested in music. I was interested in tech. Hmm. I was interested in engineering. So I started to take a lot of management courses because I felt if I studied that, I would learn lots of principles and things to help me succeed in anything that I decided okay. to do. Okay, yeah, more generalized. Because for my own experiences, I'd moved from liking art and drawing when I was in primary school to liking trivia when I was in JSS mm -hmm. to poetry and writing when I was in SHS or SSS. So I felt, you know, this might continue. So I need to have skills that if I decide to get into this other space, it would it'll be transferable. Right. Yeah. So so I was trying to actually double major. Oh, okay. Management and civil engineering. And I realized that, okay, this is going to be too difficult. Yeah, to it's, a, it's a load, yes. Yeah. <laughs> so I remember having a conversation with my dad about this. And my dad was like, you have to choose civil engineering. Oh, wow. Right. Did you and, and I think it's a bit because he's like old school and, you know, yeah, that kind of the, thing. So yeah. that's what I was, I was seeing. But I, I took his advice and I think I made it. I think that was the right decision. Okay. Because the engineering background gave me, you know, the ability to like really analyze and work with data and be quantitative, which I've leveraged in all the things I've done since. Okay. So I stuck with civil engineering, took a lot of management and business courses. Mm. And then I had to think about what I was doing from, okay, from yeah. MIT. Yeah. So I could have gone to work. I could have gone to do my master's. But seriously, in a place like MIT, there are certain kinds of jobs that most students who are finishing MIT expect to get. It's like more like the high paying jobs. More like the high paying Wall Street, yeah. top businesses, top yeah. organizations. And th that was a struggle for me. I wasn't getting most of those types of opportunities. Okay. So I was like, okay, maybe it might just be easier for me to go to grad school. Oh, so you were just going to transition straight to grad yes. school? Yes. Yeah. So, because I was looking at grad school versus going to work, mm. but I wasn't getting a lot of the work opportunities that I was really thinking about. I was thinking of working for some of the biggest civil engineering like construction companies. Right. And in hindsight, I might have dodged the bullet there because <laughs> <laughs> I ended up applying for, and I knew I didn't want to do just civil engineering stuff. You wanted to do like the general life. I wanted to do the yeah. general stuff. So I applied for some construction management type masters at Stanford, Cornell. They didn't have that at MIT. Mm, okay. for masters okay. so I kind of knew that I was going to leave Okay. and I got into Cornell again and this time I spent them again <laughs> for Stanford <laughs> so yeah so I ended up going to Stanford to do okay. construction engineering management okay yeah. well was that a different switch for you from going from MIT to Stanford or was it kind of the same I guess learning uh, principles in that school no it was it was similar 
you know, the principles were, were similar. I think, I think world-class institutions tend to be the same. So I think the major difference, you know, was especially around the people that I was hanging out with. I was one of the older ones now. Okay. Because I was hanging with a lot of undergrads. Oh. And um, especially around like African students and, you know, African engagement. And then, you know, comparing MIT and Stanford, you know, MIT is more in like a cosmopolitan place mm -hmm. close to, you know, like a city environment. Mm -hmm. Stanford was more of a bubble. So there were a few differences there. But, you know, it was, I think it was a, it was a good choice because I had, I started networking a lot mm. when I was in university. I started a bit of that when I was in Presec because I was protocol prefect. And basically in my role, I would lead lots of delegations of Presec students that were going to visit oh. people or going to events. Okay. So by the time I got to MIT, I was like going to lots of African student association events all over the place, right. going here, going there. So I thought, you know, I think I know a lot of the East Coast. Mm. Let me go to the West Coast too and see you know, what's there. Do the same <laughs> thing. Go and network there as well. Okay. So, yeah, but it was quite similar. I think one major difference, and I think it's changed a bit, is um, I think there's, there was just a lot more to do at Stanford mm. because we have Division One sports. Yeah. You know, so you can, your school is on TV. Although, <laughs> almost opposed, the time, As yeah. opposed to MIT. Yeah. Is MIT um, a sports team? We, we do. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think recently, within the last two years, the NCAA Women Athlete of the Year has been from MIT. Oh, okay. That's yeah. <laughs> you know, so I think Stanford was a bit more, there's a lot more happening on campus. Right. You know, like, would have, like, famous people come and visit, come and do events. You know, MIT was a bit smaller mm. for that. We had to go to Harvard to see the big, you know, the, to see the big people. Okay, <laughs> but it's changed now. Big people go to MIT. That's well. good. So what? Okay, so you went to Stanford now. So what was your, I guess, your professional career opportunities now that you're going to Stanford after that? <sighs> okay, that's a great question. So, in between MIT and Stanford, I started working on a Ghana music lyrics project. Okay. And this had come out of Ghana Think because Ghana Think has had two lives. In our first life, we were more of like uh, the mission has always been to mobilize and organize people, young mm -hmm. people. But in the first life, it was more of like online. So we had online discussion forums. Mm -hmm. We were incubating startups that were online based. Okay. And I was working on this Ghana Music Lyrics project because we had started talking about how hip life had become the predominant genre in Ghana. Yeah. At the and time, yeah. those who were at the forefront of hip life were young people. Yeah. So it's like, if you come to Ghana and you look at music, young people are leading. Yeah. And that was a big deal. Because growing up in our culture, you know, there's the whole elderly aspect, there's the respect aspect, there's the, you know, all of that. So to see young people leading in something was a big deal. So I started, I worked a lot on converting the Ghana Music Lyrics project into a full-blown business. Oh, okay. The summer between when I finished MIT and when I was starting Stanford. Oh, okay. So you're going to do it as your first business? Yes, that's my first startup. Okay. So I think because of that, when I got to Stanford, I was getting more and more interested in tech. Okay. And digital and websites and social media mm. and things like that. So the, though like I could have, 
kept on thinking about oh all these construction companies mm -hmm. yeah i started to think more about consulting companies first okay because i like the idea of analyzing doing research yeah, the data part yeah. the data part information to get something done and then there was google yeah so <laughs> <laughs> so I, i started getting more and more into gmail okay and to just google products in general And interestingly, for I think my first or second semester at Stanford, we, so we as construction engineering management students got the opportunity to work with like some companies in the Bay Area around their construction things. Right. And my project was around Google. Hmm. So myself and another um, classmate, we were working with a department at Google around renovating a couple of their buildings. Mm -hmm. So just being there and seeing like how great the company was, right. you know, all the free food, like yeah. how great it is to work for. Yeah, the free And then yeah. we're also hearing that Google is the best company to work for, etc. Yeah. I was just becoming very enamored with Google. Mm. So the first thing I thought of was, I think I could work for Google and work with the uh, construction or real estate team. Because mm. we've, we've seen this opportunity. Yeah, it's right there. But as the years went by and as Miseke grew and as we started looking at bar camps, which I'm sure we'll talk about in a minute, mm -hmm. I just felt that I'm not sure I want to do construction stuff yeah, <laughs> anymore. It, yeah, it feels like an old thing. Yes, like, this is not what I want to do. Right. I like tech. I like digital. I like hanging out with young people. I like celebrating people who are doing well. So the next thing I thought of was the, maybe I could be a product manager at Google. Okay. And I think around the time I was thinking about that, I started to take a lot of time off my master's program oh. to work with startups in the Bay. Right there, yeah. To work with like consulting companies. I took some time to even come to Ghana for like a whole a whole uh, semester I, I, I linked that with the African Cup of Nations I wanted to come and watch it <laughs> so, <laughs> so, so I came to intern with a company Consai in Ghana so okay. I could watch the African Cup of Nations you know, <laughs> we could make, make all this stuff, stuff up so I was just you know getting more into you know tech and management and then the the next thing I thought of was maybe I could work with Google around localization That makes sense. Because yeah. for Miseke, we were working a lot on like African music lyrics. Yeah. So we had a lot of content in, you know, African music, in African languages. Even one of my Google friends had reached out to me so we could do a project together. And then there's also Kasahoro, which came out of Ghana, I think, that we were thinking about. So, so I think sometime around 2009, after we had done the first bar camp in Ghana, then we heard that Estela Kofiosoa had become the first country manager for Google, Google. in Ghana. Yeah. So it's like, oh, wow, Google is in Ghana now. Right. And then we started hearing about Google hiring for positions on the continent. Okay. So it's like, ah, wait, I could just go and work for Google in Ghana. Yeah, you already have the, <laughs> you already have the network, so yes. why not? Yeah. So, I mean, I think once, you know, I thought of that and realized that, oh, I stand a very good chance. I was done with the whole construction space <laughs> and I was done with being in America and I'm like... Going, going back, home. going back. To, yeah. So, when was your first official hire date for Google in, in back in Ghana? <sighs> so, I think I joined Google sometime early June. Okay, no, probably joined 
before June 2011. Mm -hmm. But I think my first date was sometime in June 2011. Okay. So I had to do orientation and a lot of those things at the Googleplex before coming to Ghana. So that was that was an excellent two months. It was just you know orientation, getting to know. You know it's not very busy. Yeah. Get to eat a lot of free food. Yeah. <laughs> I, I like a lot of free food at the time. Um, it's, it's a grass student thing. I think. <laughs> Probably, yeah. Yeah. So, so it was great. And then I came to Ghana on the seventeenth of August, twenty eleven. And I remember, I'll never forget that date because. On that date, I was going to be... I was receiving an award at the Accra International Conference Center okay. from Legacy and Legacy. It's the same organization that runs Springboard, okay. Springboard Roadshow. And they were starting this... I think it was the first year. They were starting this award ceremony to honor young people. Mm. And they said that they were honoring young people who had contributed a lot to Ghana's development who were under the age of 40. Okay, like a full month, like a 40 and a 40 year old. Yes. And I wasn't even 30 then. So I was like, wow, like I don't live in the country. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't live in the country. So to win this award is a big thing. And I was awarded together with uh, Farida Bedway and Bryce Simmons at the time. Mm. So um, I think there were some delays with Google relocating me to Ghana. Okay. Um, but I was like, no matter what, you guys better get me in the country before 17 yeah, August 2011. That. Yeah, that's a big... <laughs> so yeah, so big. I remember that day I arrived, I went to the office, went to say hi to, you know, I knew Estelle already. I, there are a couple of people I knew already as well who were working at Google. And then I left home, I left for home early, went to prepare and went to the award ceremony. Yes. So. It's, it, was, it's, it, was, it was great. <laughs> yeah, it, it, does, it does sound great. Yeah. So now you're back in Ghana and you're now working for Google. So what was that ex- entire experience like working for Google doing those things? It was everything I thought. I remember, I think I was setting a goal sometime in 2009. And my goal was to work for Google. So my dream had been realized. Mm. And I think I was in a good role. So the role I was in was a program manager around outreach and developer relations. So that gave me the opportunity to engage with lots of people that had been engaging before through bar camps like techies, developers, you know, bloggers and things like that. And um, this time, you know, not just in Ghana. So my role was a sub-Saharan African role. So um, it gave me the opportunity to travel to other countries because I had always, you know, really try to celebrate Africa, try to learn a lot of things about different, different African places, countries, yeah. especially through Miseke. Because mm. for Miseke, we had lyrics from 46 African countries, including, you know, Egypt, Morocco, and Co. Yes. So there was a lot I was learning about all of these countries. I was learning about, you know, their culture, you know, what people are doing there in tech, what the young people are doing. So the Google role gave me an opportunity to be able to travel to these African countries. So like I knew so much about Nigeria, but I never, never been there. Yeah. You know, Tanzania never been before. In fact, even when I was in the US, especially in California, lots of people that I'll meet would say that I look Nigerian. Hmm. 
they were like, oh, you don't look Ghanaian, you look Nigerian. <laughs> so I started even making a joke out of it. So I came up with some funny Nigerian name. If right. people and they said, I'm Nigerian, I'm like, yes, I'm Nigerian. Yeah. This is my Nigerian name. Yeah. <laughs> and at some point, my friends, my Nigerian friends were like, this name is not That's true. not Nigerian. <laughs> you, if you're going to continue doing this, let's create a name for you. Yeah, then like we created, an a name, name, yeah. created a Nigerian name for me. So um, just the opportunity to be able to engage because I'd also started engaging a lot of people on Twitter. Mm. So lots of, you know, young Africans based in these African That's cities good, yeah. who were running, you know, communities, tech communities, running events like bar camps, you know, trying to influence on social media. So once I started traveling around, you know, normally I'll meet a bunch of them. I also meet musicians because of mm. Miseke. <laughs> and then I'll meet, you know, tech people. And then in some cases, friends of mine I knew from the US who had moved back. Yes. So it, it, it was good. And I think Google also allowed me to see how big institutions work, mm. you know, pick up some working principles that we continue to work with. I'd always been enamored with Google tools. Yeah. So even working for Google helped me to understand how to use these tools even better, right. which we continue to use in what we do with Ghana, I think, and most of my work as well. And uh, I think there were lots of people, awesome people that Google had hired. Mm. So it was just great to be able to work with such people, learn from them, um, work with them. Because, I mean, some of the people that Google hired, I was like, it's like, really? They hired that person? Like, that person is great. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's a good hire, yeah. Yeah, so, and it's, it's, it's interesting. So I think also because of the kind of people that Google hired or Google continues to hire, they're not people who might, they can do big things, you know. So lots of those people don't also stay at Google for long, mm. you know, because there's something that they want to do. Mm. And Google, yeah. going back to some of my statements when I was writing, when I was applying for MIT, Ambition was something for me from day one. Mm. I, I think, I think I probably got into MIT because of just how ambitious mm. I spoke about myself. Right. And you know, so even when I was at Google, I felt that you know, I think this is great. I mean, my dream job. I'm enjoying it, but there's there's so many there are things I want to do that are bigger than Google, right. Google. for me. I think that's how that's how it went. Okay. So when did you officially decide to leave Google? It was sometime getting to the end of 2012. 2012? Yeah. Okay. So you basically, I think you worked for like a year or so? Yeah, like about 17 months. 17 months, okay. Yeah, okay. yeah. So, and, and I think the, the thing that struck me was, I just felt that there were, I just felt that there were things that I wanted to do that, doing full-time work for Google will not allow me to do. Yep, understandable, yeah. Right? Yeah. So even I even had some of those challenges at Google. Like, I think when I was there, people felt that I loved Ghana too much. <laughs> <laughs> okay, what? Well, you know? So, so I, I think, you know, I just felt that, and, and I think also before Google, I had been doing the whole Miseke thing. Yeah. So I think I can go out, you know, and do my own stuff and succeed. Right. That's, that's what happened. But I mean... Interestingly, I mean, after I left Google, I, I realized that wow, it's not that easy to do your own stuff as you need to build up. So, um, so I started to think of you know other revenue streams. Mm. Yeah, so taking contract jobs, etc., and that's how I ended up at Rankard. Okay, so yeah. 
When you got Ironcut, like what, what was your position at Ironcut just to start off? Yeah, so I came in as a project manager and a product manager. Okay. So Rankard, you know, has always focused on helping people who have content get it to people on mobile, on mobile. Hmm. So Rankard was doing a lot around SMS apps and also playing around with voice apps. And they started uh, Vodafone Live, like a streaming, like you can buy music with Vodafone credit. Wow. Okay. By the time I joined Rankard, uh, there was a project with Intel that we were working on. And the idea was to build like an education marketplace. Okay. Whereby people in Kenya, Nigeria, and South Africa could come into a marketplace and either buy or download for free educational material, no matter what stage of the educational ladder they were on. So that was the project I worked on. So pretty much you could say it was like a new app that we were building. Mm. So to look at the whole process from, you know, prototyping development to design to coming up with a business model, all of those things, that was really exciting stuff for me. So that was a project that I I worked on. I worked on a couple of other projects, but the other thing was also products because this app that we were building for Intel was an Android app. And this was the first time that Rankard was trying to do this. Okay. Uh, So we built it on Android and we also built it on Windows. Okay. So we also started looking at products. So we had a payment product, payment gateway. We also had like a content management system that we were also building. And then we also had like a recommendation engine that we were building. Oh, wow. So I was part project manager, part product manager. Okay, cool. Yeah. Okay. And how did, how long did you stay at Rankard for you? Yeah, so again, I mean, I think the the key thing for me about Ram, Rankard was the co-founders. Hmm. So you have Kofi Dazi, Kofi, you have yeah. Ehi, Binditye. They both grew up in Ghana and they had built one of the biggest tech firms in Ghana, mm-hmm. like mid-size, right? Yeah. I mean, I think probably at the height of Rankard, there were probably at least 80 professional staff. Mm-hmm. So for me, I was like, I need to learn from these guys. Mm-hmm. They've built something that is working. It's a Ghanaian company. It's doing well. Yeah. It has Google as clients, BBC as clients, Intel as clients. So my thought process was to learn from them. Mm-hmm. And then at a point where I thought, oh, I'd learned a good amount, then okay, Let's go do our thing again. <laughs> right. So I I left Rankard very early 2015. Okay. And when I was leaving Rankard, I was like, I'm not going to work for anyone again. Okay. You you just thought <laughs> that you were done working yes, for organizations. Yes. Yes. I need to be able to build my own hmm. and, you know, find other revenue streams to fill the gaps. Okay. Okay. So we've been talking about you mentioning in Ghana thinking Barcamp. So I don't know, where did the idea of Barcamp even come to place? Because I think you started early doing your MIT Stanford yeah. days. So how did you bring that back to Ghana? Yeah. So so I mentioned that in our first life for Ghana, I think we had like online discussion forums. Yeah. And this, most of the people, the members of the forums were mostly young Ghanaians, mostly students in top universities in the US, in the UK, some around the, uh, some around the world, who were discussing issues pertaining to Ghana and Africa. So through that, like we were networking, getting to learn, peop- learn different things. Like for me, I was learning about economics, like, cause that wasn't my field. So fast forward to about 2008, one of our co-founders, Henry Bano, had heard of this idea of bar camps. 
and I think it was following like the TED model. Uh, okay. And bar camps were basically like on conferences. So they are gatherings, but they are not like a conference whereby there's a set agenda and there are set speakers. So bar camps come, the idea of bar camps are they're supposed to be ad hoc, mm. right? So people come and then the bar camp happens uh, and anybody can be a speaker. Okay. And it's very, it's supposed to be very interactive. So he had of like, I think one bar camp in Mauritius, one bar camp in South Africa, maybe one in Kenya. And he was like, let's do the first one in Ghana mm. because this event model is similar to a discussion forum. Mm. And but it's offline. Yeah, and it's offline. And we think we are ready to do offline events. Okay. So we went to uh, myself, Henry Bano, Pakwe Simbia. We went to Barkham Africa at the Google Plex in 2008. I think it was around October. And I was just blown away by the event. Because I'd been to some of these like Harvard African business conferences <laughs> in the past. Yeah. Which were great. You know, have lots of great Africans there talking about lots of different things. But the thing about the backhand for me was like everyone who came could be involved. Mm. It wasn't like we came to listen to other people. Yeah. And most of the people who came were people who were doing something. Like it's not like they are working for a big P firm yeah, yeah. or they are working for a big bank. They are people who have started something and they are being celebrated for it. Mm. So it's like, wow. <laughs> like that, good, these are good, my kind of people. It's a good concept, yeah. And also because of the format, it also brings out what people are doing. And it allows people to really network and like tomorrow we can do this mm. or we can partner. So we just really loved the event or the format. And we're like, okay, so we're doing it in December in 2000, uh, December in Ghana. So we had the first bar camp at the Kofi Annan ICT Center. And one of the key things, I think it went really well. And um, we were focusing on business and tech renaissance, mm. but especially what are young people in Ghana doing for work? Mm. What businesses are they running? Right. What are young people, young Ghanaians abroad, where are they working? What businesses right. are they running? That was kind of like what we were playing with, so right. especially around the startup space. And uh, we had lots of young resource personnel which was different because in most events in Ghana, it's like the old people that you come and hear speak. Mm. And then there's one thing that Isi Ansan, who lectures at Ashesi University, has said at the back and that really stuck with me. She said, most events, you go to those events and you get talked at. Yeah. But at the back end, you can come and talk. Mm. You know, so that's kind of like, you know, what we were leveraging. And uh, it's been 116 bar camps since. Wow, 116, that's a lot. So yeah. since 2008 <laughs> yes. to now. Yeah. So yeah, so basically 10 plus years. Yeah. 10 plus years. Yeah. So from all the bar camp that you've done, what's the, I guess, what have you learned so far? What have you experienced? The, the, the one, I guess the, what's the biggest takeaway so far you've done from these bar camps in Ghana? I think the biggest takeaway is that there are lots of young people who, in spite of all the things that we talk about and complain about and stare us in the face and maybe prevent us from doing certain things, who are just driven and want to get things done. Mm. So that's one. And I think, secondly, I think there's the community aspect of things whereby people want to find like-minded people mm. to work with, to engage with, to hang out with, etc. I think the other thing has to do with technology 
and how people embrace technology. How do people use digital tools for work, for selling, for, you know, recreation, you know? So, you know, because the, the thing is, we don't want people to say that Ghanaian youth are so-so-and-so negative words, right? right? So through the bar camps, we're able to see that, like, there are lots of youth who are trying to be great, Mm -hmm. who are great. And intentionally, if we bring them together with lots of different people, they would copy them and run out of excuses why they don't succeed. Oh, wow. Okay. <laughs> right? Yeah. So yeah. it's it's we call it horizontal inspiration. Okay. So, you know, you are talking about all of these things, but look at what those guys are doing. Mm. Yeah, right? so basically you have no excuse. Yes. So that's, that's, kind of <laughs> that's kind of what we want to engineer with people and, you know, kind of like bring those kinds of mindsets. So the... So, I mean, I think, you know, it's really helped, you know, so far as like the startup culture that you know people can do this do that see these tools use those tools i think it's been good i mean apart from you know the numbers of people that we've impacted the number of organizations that have come out i think just the personal development journeys that people go on mm-hmm. is extremely important yes yeah cool. okay so if i had to ask you this question like looking back on your career you know going from mit all the way to stanford and then you know kind of going away from civil engineering to tech and business and then now doing the bar camps if you had to go back and look like throughout that timeline is there anything that you kind of regret that you didn't do or wanted to do and you know anything like that aspect I think I should have studied management earlier oh okay (laughs) I think that's the first one I would have probably if I was to do this again I would have studied management in my first year instead of civil engineering okay and then secondly, I think I probably would have, I mean, I worked with lots of organizations when I was at Stanford. And even at MIT, I worked with lots of different clubs and societies like AITI, um, it was around tech, um, Ease, we were raising money to fund scholarships for people in Ghana. I think I would have, I'd have liked to intern more. Hmm. I'd have liked to intern more um, so that I could have learned a few things earlier, which would have kind of sped the progress of the things I've been working on later in life. Oh, okay. That's yeah. that, makes, so, that makes a lot of sense. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, mean, I wish I knew, but... I didn't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but now you're here. So I guess the last question I asked for this episode, so lots of young people probably listen to this podcast even business professionals like if you could give like one piece of advice to them as far as building their business or just making it in life what would you like tell them Hmm. I think documentation Hmm. I think documentation but maybe above documentation how can you use technology tools to make your life easier yeah I'll pick the technology bit so how can you use, you know, I mean, lots of people say that I seem to be doing so much and they're like, how do I, mean, I get how do you do the it? time yeah. to do it? How do I get to do it? It's just because <laughs> I've just found a way to maximize WhatsApp, found a way to maximize Gmail, found mm-hmm. a way to maximize all the different tools that I use. So okay. I think, you know, making technology work for you is important. Um, so that also means that you have to embrace it. 
So first, learning about it, embracing it, and then learning how to use it, right? Sometimes I feel that lots of young people, young Africans for that matter, do not realize the power of the help button. (laughs) (laughs) Do not realize the power of the help button. Like, there's so much that you could do with Excel if you just went to help and type what you're trying to do. Yeah. You know, so for me, I think just leveraging the power of technology to make you or individuals work faster and work smarter would would be the number one thing. So you do that at at an organization level, you ensure all your employees are doing that. And for me, that's, that's what I would say. Yes. Thanks for listening to this episode of What's Your Story? This episode was brought to you by Paystack the smart choice for accepting payments from anyone, anywhere in the world. Visit paystack.com slash technova to get started.